So Escape from New York, he does the year after. Yeah. And that I think ushers in that probably ushers in what I'm what I consider what what I've been terming and I'm working on um like a thesis video to this, like his texture period, where this is the period of time in his filmmaking where he will become defined by the work he puts out starting from like this point forward. Yeah. So even though Halloween is its own thing, it's kind of like with George Romero, Night of the Living Dead, he does that movie. He does a bunch of like the problem with, what is it, Vanilla and the crazy, you know, these movies come out after. They're kind of forgettable. You know, they get wiped under the rug. Dawn of the Dead happens, yeah. right? And then that sparks what we recognize as John uh, George Romero. So John Carpenter has this with Escape from New York. It's such a... It's cartoony in some ways, in a good way. It's uh, it, it feels a lot like a, a comic book film. Uh, the characters are very two-dimensional. The plot is insane. And uh, yet today, as a, as a New Yorker, it doesn't feel too detached from reality. <laughs> so that's the thing as well. Uh, Escape from New York is actually one of his movies. You know, I was big, especially on John Carpenter in my early 20s. And so I, I watched a good portion of his filmography then. Escape from New York was one that I had not gotten to until maybe about four or five years ago. And I was so impressed with just the the, the visual flair yeah. of this movie. And and how well done, you know, these things are. Uh, simple things like, you know, the cityscape and also like the infrared, you know, reading of that where they couldn't afford digital effects. So what they did was mask like models of the city in black tape inverted and then put that on the screen like that holds up so much better than what would have been hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. for uh something that's going to look essentially shitty. tron yeah you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yes. it's a it's a great capsule or time capsule you know because even though it's supposed to be what year is it supposed to be it's supposed to be like the year 2000 or something 1997 okay uh i believe it's 1997 which, which yeah. is uh six 16 years after the movie came out uh but it's a it's a it's a great 80s time capsule because you get the a, typical 80s hero with a great head of hair he's not super buff but he's athletic and he he doesn't really show you that much to be honest is the type of hero that no. is a type of hero that has catchphrases more than fists because you don't really see him i mean he does fight but he's not the the tur he literally gets in a ring and has a like a wrestling match with with a character, yes. But no, I, I see what you what you mean here. He's not excessively buff. He's not the Rock. He isn't a cut off. He's not Arnold. Uh, sleeve shirt. Yeah. Though. Right. And and his body, uh, his arms are skinny too. He's not very muscular, but he has so many lines, and the performance is so such eighties action man that you follow this character, even though. I mean, I, I don't think I personally don't believe the fact that he, this is the most hardened criminal in the world. The only one that can do this job because he doesn't really show it. Like a, a lot of it is just hearsay or like things that the other characters say. But the performance is so good in that role that you just believe it. You're just like, yes, of course, Snake can beat up 100 people at once, even though he's little, you know, <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and that's that's why I feel it's such a such a great time capsule because it, it's the you know, typical 80s hero before steroids came in, you know? Right, right. So I, I was I was just about to say, 
you referenced Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, he was active as of like the 70s. Actually, I saw him recently as like a background character in a film I was watching. Um, I, I, I can't recall the film. I'll, I'll have to think about that. But that kind of uh, arch, archetype or, or like model of a man was not popularized just yet. I think that was more of a mid-80s yeah. phenom- phenomenon. We were a few a few years away from that. Um, so you buy Kurt Russell to a degree, and probably especially back then. You know, he, he's got that grit about him that feels vaguely John Wayne-esque, mm. even though he doesn't have, like, the burly build of a John Wayne type. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, he, and, and this character has been spoofed and lampooned and outright stolen in the case of, like, Metal Gear Solid. Snake Plissken yeah. is... is taken for that game uh i yeah, but he is kind of like the defining character maybe outside of michael myers of john carpenter's filmography although michael myers i think represents halloween as a whole yeah. for obvious reasons uh snake plissken might represent john carpenter as a whole maybe it might be the most record yeah the most recognizable character unless you think of uh character yeah. i mean if you if you think to just creatures and what, I think the thing probably tops that. Okay. But as far as any kind of persona, Snake Plissken is definitely up there. But even um, but even the thing, I mean, if we just have you, if you just show the monster, if you just show the the thing monster, some people might recognize it that have seen the movie. But it's not. Well, I guess Escape from New York is not really that you know well known movie for everyone that doesn't give a shit about movies i guess it's it's someone like us yeah. that that is obsessed with this type of thing can appreciate but i think the the look of the character if you you see it and you know what it is is more recognizable than the monster from the thing because it could just be you know a you, monster from any other movie do you think that his artistry is most on display in this film as an auteur and, and just the types of people he um, uh, uh, personally selected, curated is the word I was looking for, to work on his films. Do you think this exemplifies that best? Uh, I don't know, because you have Escape from L.A. where you have that... <laughs> where you have that... You have that surfing scene that's very artistic. Uh, you know the scene where he... that felt very Batman 1966, <laughs> where Batman yes. and the Joker are in a surf competition with one another, and there's a fucking blue screen. Where he him. has the that's great the anti shark spray, uh, but in this one he yes. he rides a tsunami. That's the smallest tsunami I've ever seen, and you know falls into uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, he's Steve yeah, Buscemi, Buscemi, Buscemi Scott. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. Uh, maybe. Just because, and, just because uh, of the scale of the movie, you might be right. Because in this one, it, there's a whole universe that's created in New York. And it's just this wasteland that was created completely... That's com- I don't know. Maybe it's not completely different to what New York was in 81. But it, it feels bigger than any other movie from the list. Unless you think of the world that was created in Ghosts of Mars. But this one's the one where... I mean... Well, I, I think I think the, this New York he's created seems like a natural outcome to like picture Scorsese's movies in the seventies yeah. or or uh, Abel Ferrer or any of those uh, types of directors that captured New York City at the prime of its crime infestation. Mm-hmm. Right? You take a look at then uh, Escape from New York, twenty years away, essentially. Right? Um, 
it, it seems like a natural evolution of, you know, once things get to the bottom, this is what it's going to look like. Right. So I don't think it, I don't think it, it's too wild. It's too out there. It's in its own way science fiction, though not not like distant science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and the world that they create, and they didn't even shoot in New York. I believe they shot in Washington D.C. Uh, maybe I have that wrong. I know part of it was shot in D.C. Um, feels feels inhabited. It feels uh, like it has some some real grit to it that can ground it somewhat in reality, even if it is completely, uh, you know, over the top. St. Louis is where they... Should we get into St. Louis? Okay. Should we get into Escape from L.A. directly from this? And then just backtrack? Because I feel like that's that's where this is going anyway, because there there is a night and day (laughs) comparison between these two. This is John Carpenter with no money, and then John Carpenter with as much money as he likes. And there is a clear difference here between the... And also, you know, yeah, he's a bit older, but he's not old yet. Yeah, yeah. You know? He's, he's, not, he's not old enough to be retiring or, or that, you know, out of whack. Escape from L.A. comes out in 1996. Yeah. This is 15 years after Escape from New York. And it feels to me more like a Robert Rodriguez yeah. film from the early aughts yeah. than anything John Carpenter would do. He is very reliant on blue or green screen technology and the soundtrack is very 90s very like in your face marilyn manson limp biscuity <laughs> pam greer in there during her comeback phase when she's sucking off tarantino for film roles um do you hate I it don't, though i don't know yeah i do okay. i i i you know you'll listen to You'll listen to the Cinematologist podcast on this episode a month from now when he then inevitably does his film. And he will he will have a different picture to paint of Escape from New York. Yeah. But no, this LA, movie is a big pile of shit. Escape from L.A., you mean? Excuse yeah. me, L.A., yes. <laughs> yeah. Escape from L.A. Yeah. Escape from L.A. is is worthless it is it is a it's a sack of trash. This film it's a, it's a it's a mistake. <laughs> I guess I'm a little bit biased just because I saw it. After the word Ghosts of Mars and Vampires. So I was like, this is not so bad. <laughs> I was like, it's still Snake, I guess. This is not terrible. Uh, but maybe if I didn't have that trilogy of great movies before that one, I might not have, you know, the same appreciation for it. Um, because everything you just said is true. And everything... I guess it's just a couple of little moments that really won me over, which is the surfing one. And then also... When Snake Pilskin has to uh, play basketball while wearing leather uh, very quickly <laughs> to not get yeah. killed. Uh, so those th- couple yeah. of moments maybe just made me not hate the rest of it. But it is not great. It's, it's definitely a, a, a step down from Escape from New York. Like a way... A step down. Way, just, just, but, well, just okay. a step. This <laughs> is like a jump. Okay, fine. You fell down the stairs like the exorcist. And at the bottom, there's Escape from LA. The biggest, the biggest, <laughs> the biggest crime this movie commits is that it is essentially, it does the Evil Dead thing, which is like, now we have money. Let's remake it, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's not original yeah. enough. You know, I watched the first 10 minutes and I was like, okay, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe there's something interesting to this. Well, uh, we have the, the Cliff, Cliff Robinson, what? I think his name's Cliff, whoever played Uncle Ben in the, in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. He's like a religious zealot. 
president, uh, you know, in L.A. is so degenerate and the president's daughter is crazy Antifa girl. Yeah. I was like, wow, this feels this feels like today. This feels like now. Uh, and then it just completely falls apart after that. Um, the the special effects are, are atrocious and not like in a fun way. You don't like this. Dude, but, you don't like this. You, you can you don't like the setup of, hey, we just injected a body. I mean, a virus in your body. Uh, again, <laughs> you you might not again. You might not live if you don't do this thing uh, again. <laughs> and he's just like, all right, uh, all right. Like from the beginning, you can tell that Kurt Russell is just like, yeah, sure. Like the especially in that <laughs> especially in that setup when they're walking him to like tell him what the what the mission is going to be. You you can tell that the effort there was not a hundred percent there. At the same time, yeah. I don't know if I, 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 I don't mean, know if Escape from New York is a well-known property where anyone was clamoring for Escape from LA movie. You know, I don't think at the time that was the case. I I think Escape from New York was one of those cult films yeah. where it generated an audience over the decades, probably from like video stores and whatnot and good word of mouth. Escape from LA happens, I think, solely because of Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell, I believe, wanted to bring that character back. And I do remember being like six or seven years old and seeing a lot of Snake Plissken stuff. Like McFarlane Toys put out their Snake Plissken action figure, like the movie Maniacs line, and there were comic books. So there was there was a bit of a renaissance in the mid-90s of that property. But He co-wrote it, didn't he? The execution of this... He might have. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. The execution of this is extremely poor. And I, I, I was watching like a Blu-ray rip recently. And it's like uh, there's holograms and you can see like the <laughs> particling of the chroma key. And it's like you're still just figuring this technology out. And it doesn't doesn't work. Pam Greer's a man. And it's. Pam Greer has a oh, deep yeah, voice. Oh, yeah, that's true. I forgot about that. It's it's weird because the if, the if, effects in Escape from New York look much better, even though it's, you know, 15 years before. Yes. it Everything about this movie feels like baby's first editing software. Yeah. You know, it's like, ah, we, we're editing with computers for the first time. What can we use? <laughs> ah, fade. We'll use a fade transition. We'll use a dissolve transition. Chroma key? Per- oh, great. This is going to look great. Yeah. Yeah, boy, it's it's bad. It's really bad. Don't listen to anybody. What a waste of <laughs> Stacy Keach as well. Yeah, Stacy Keach is in this movie, yeah. and uh, he's he's eh, it's it's sad. It's there. And I'm glad that uh, you know things did not continue. Cliff Robertson. I said Cliff Robinson earlier. Cliff Robertson is the president in this movie. He's decent. Peter Fonda's in this movie, essentially being his Easy Rider character yeah. for the 90th time because he's probably down on his luck, even though he's from a f- fucking wealthy Hollywood family. Um, I don't know what else can be said about this. Thank God Ghosts of Mars did not become Snake Plissken Part 3. Oh, and you can see... Right? You can see, right? You can see elements from it that would fit in that world they created in Escape from L.A. because the... The buildings, whenever they're inside of a building, they look very similar. They they look like they would be in a you know similar universe. So now that you say that, that would probably have ruined that character forever. Yeah, if they you know inserted it into this Ghost of Mars garbage. Have you seen it, right? Ghost of Mars. Yeah. Yes, I have. Um, 
to my knowledge, Escape from L.A. originally had a different plot and script entirely that I think had been written by... I don't know if the original film had a different screenwriter. It was written by somebody else. They threw that out and went along with what they wound up doing. Mm. And I think that was a big mistake in retrospect. Oh, sorry. Uh, it wasn't L.A. as the setting. It was Escape to New York. That was going to be the sequel. That- so everywhere else in the world uh, becomes so chaotic enough that New York, the you know little prison, right. island prison that it is, becomes a sanctuary. For ah. people trying to get away, um, that, that could comes, have been interesting. That might have that been a better, much better, yeah. Because in the in this one, it's just like, hey, LA yeah. is just just like New York. There's criminals here too. And it's just like, well, why? Just go back to the, yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's, yeah. it's shit. But if you watch his other three movies before this one, like his latest. <laughs> Latest, later movies, uh, it won't be that bad. His you, latest you, film. His, if you watch the word Lust of Mars and Vampires before Escape from L.A., you might have a little bit of an appreciation for it. But otherwise, yeah, it's, it's not, not even worth watching. Do you remember Vampires? Okay, so then we go to... Yes, I, 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 have, a, I have a fond recollection of Vampires. It's unlike what terrible. you're alluding to right now. Eh, it's, it's <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll we'll get to it. Yeah, let's let's go. We'll, let's we'll go get to it. We'll get to it. Okay. So his next big film, you know, and I mean, Halloween, Escape from New York, and The Thing are probably the big three. Yeah. And he follows up Escape from New York the year after with The Thing, based off of The Thing from Another World, which was mm-hmm. based on the I think John Campbell right uh, book. And this is this is the one that probably ages the best. It's yeah. maybe his most serious film. And do you think it's his best? The special effects here I would say I would say it's his best. Yeah. The special effects here are uh like a hallmark. Yeah. They they you know, rather they're they're a benchmark in in movie making. Yeah. I don't think you can really get much better as far as uh body horror and whatnot than what is found in the thing. Also, also so, the script. Uh, how, like, how even the way that the movie ends, you oh, go ahead. you don't really expect the the uh, twists that the story has, and even at the ending, you're kind of like, oh shit! Like it's it's from beginning to end, visually and story wise, is probably the most solid one in his filmography, and it's still, uh, at least to me, one of the best genre movies from the '80s. Uh, just because of those, Absolutely. because of those two reasons, because it's one of the few that if you watch now, it still holds up, which is very difficult to do with all of these '80s movies because of all the elements and how things have changed. This one, if you watch it now or show it to someone that's never seen, it might not have the same impact as if you watched it in '82, but it still holds up pretty well. And this is this is the one movie that comes to mind, aside from maybe Halloween, that doesn't have any kind of camp nature to mm. it. This is this is John Carpenter at his most sincere, and that that I mean to go back to the conversation we were having earlier, not to uh, derail things again. I think that's also a problem with YouTubers who go on to make films like James Rolfe or Red Letter Media, even who you know produce great comedic content on their channel, uh, and they seem to have like a decent grasp of what makes for a good movie, yeah. but then when put into practice. They can't execute that themselves because everything is so 
drenched in irony and sarcasm, uh, you know, it's very clear that that's a protective bubble because they don't want to fail, legitimately fail, at making a bad film by going sincere and embarrassing themselves. That's a, that's a point I wanted to make earlier, especially with uh, movie reviewers, that maybe one of the reasons why they don't really put themselves out there as a filmmaker is because if they fail at it or if the movie's not good, their credibility would probably not stay at the same level as it is now. Like someone like uh, Your Movie Sucks, if he made his own movie and it wasn't amazing, people will be like, well, you're criticizing this other movies really harshly and your movie's a pile of shit. So maybe that fear of losing the audience that you've built being this character of like, I'm never showing you anything I've done, but I I have this voice of, you know, being able to criticize all of this. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, if like like it happened with uh, James Rolfe, like the his movie after it came out, yeah. after how much it was hyped by him. Uh, and then I, I honestly think that that maybe hurt his credibility a little bit just because it's not the same to hear him talk or criticizing all of these movies first and then you watch the things that he actually does and it's kind of like, oh, uh, wow. I, I, th- I think there's something to that. I think that's uh, absolutely uh, uh, verifiable in certain cases. However, you also take a look at, I mean, well, a film criticism you have to keep in mind is going to always be subjective, mm. right? So even Roger Ebert failed as a screenwriter before becoming a massive film critic. But that, that choice to uh, barb yourself in irony out of protection when you try to make an earnest effort and anthony fantano did this as well when he released his own little ep or whatever he did you know music critic anthony fantano he does it as a character yes he did it as a character he did parody filthy frank did the same thing Mm -hmm. at first yeah he put out the pink guy spoof parody thing and when people were like oh this is actually pretty decent there there could be something to this then he decided to embrace the full-on sincere personality of joji or whatever people do that at the end of the day, you have to be willing to sacrifice your title as a film critic, I think, if you want to be an established director or, or whatever it might be. Um, Are you nervous about and, your movie because of that? Uh, no, because I'm not going to I'm not going to fall back on like here. Here's the thing. As much as I like doing documentaries and whatnot for for YouTube or doing podcasts, um, I don't have the same kind of drive for this that I have for just like making stuff in, in the editing suite that are like based on nonsense. So I'll, right. I'll be doing that until I'm 80 or 90. Um, my energy for this is more limited. So no, I'm not, I'm not really worried about that. And I don't, I don't consider myself a film critic anyway. What we do yeah. on this show is more analysis and discussing how films make an impact on culture as opposed to maybe the flaws and why this is wrong. This is correct. Um, so no, it's it's not something I'm I'm terribly worried about, but I'm conscious of of the environment of things. We'll say, and uh, John Carpenter, get back to him. Uh, clearly, he's somebody who goes in the more uh, humorous direction from the thing. I think he he realizes that this film, by comparison, is ultra serious, and he tries to take a lighter approach gradually as he goes along so christine uh has a bit of that camp flair to it starman i I can't speak to that Mm -hmm. it seems a little campy 
Big Trouble in Little China is really where he maxes things yeah. out. Um, what did you think of the remake of the thing? The prequel that they put out with uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead? Sure. You, you didn't see it? Yes. Yeah, the prequel. The prequel. Like, it has any real tie it's, to <laughs> it's and, and, this film. I have seen it. I have seen it. and I, I saw it in the theater, and I was like, this is shit <laughs> i didn't even know like i wasn't really that much into movies yeah. at the time when i saw it so i i didn't even have the thought of you know oh this is wrong or what like this doesn't make any sense or whatever i was just sitting there bored and i was like this sucks uh i haven't seen it since it came out just for that same reason so i don't have much of an opinion to it other than i didn't care at all for it besides the fact that i think she's really the biggest sucks. crime the biggest crime with that film is that they did all practical effects and then the studio was like, no, 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 no. We need CGI. So go back and do this with little green balls and we'll fill it in in post. Yeah. Also, <sighs> if... if I, I, I can't imagine. The link to the, to the movie, too, I don't think that was needed. And I think that added a layer of pressure no. on the movie that it, if it didn't have, maybe it would be a more enjoyable film. But the fact that they tried to... I guess it, it kind of relates to uh, something like uh, Underwater. Was that the movie where all of a sudden they're like, oh, wait, that's that's Cthulhu there. The Cthulhu Yeah, it movie. was just yeah, like, yeah, all right, yeah. this doesn't really add anything to the movie at all. Uh, and you're just saying it just because it's a thing in people's uh, uh, minds or whatever. I honestly don't think that that was the original thought, especially. Have you seen it? I have okay. seen it, yes. And uh, when I, I mean, the first red flag for me was when they cast that guy from Dumb and Dumber Two. You know, when they cast uh, Thomas, two guys who weren't Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thomas something. No, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy that was in a lot of I, like romantic comedies in the early two thousand as the goofball, as the, right. as the dick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Kind of looks like Matthew. He, Matthew I think he was Lillard. In not another teen movie. It's like when they couldn't get Matthew Lillard. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Similar personality, too. He was definitely in that mold. As soon as they cast him and they announced that the lead would be a female, I was like, this, this, <laughs> this is going to be a problem. This is not, not going to be a good movie. Because I, I do think that part of the... I mean, part, part of just like the feeling of that thing, movie from 82, um, that isn't even... You know, overlapped with the thing from another world in the 1950s Howard Hawks one is that it is like a a Glenn Gary Glenn Ross situation where you have an all male cast and you you know how that all male environment can uh, gradually heighten things, especially when there's an element of paranoia. You don't know who you can trust, who's dangerous, and whatnot. Isolation. When you have that from the, the right, when you have that from the perspective of Mary Elizabeth Winstead. It changes the dynamic some. And it also just puts it more in a typical horror mold where it's like, we have the female lead. She'll be the final girl. Da, 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 da. Yeah. She's smarter than everyone. She's stronger standard. than everyone. It makes it more she, by the numbers. Yes. Yeah. Correct. So that, that, that was a problem, um, I think, just from a storytelling and, and whatnot perspective for this particular property, right? Especially if you're going back to the Carpenter thing yeah. and not the Howard Hawks thing. Uh, but yeah, I I, I would actually I would genuinely be interested in seeing uh, the cut of the movie that was completed with the practical effects because what I had seen seemed 
decent enough anyway. I mean, it's hard to get a read on these things when you're just seeing behind the scenes photos yeah. and not an actual finished product. Uh, I think that film probably deserves its due. It deserves its own Snyder cut, if you will, on HBO Max. <laughs> you should uh, um, you should start I, a, a hashtag on Twitter. You know, those people that are asking for the fucking Suicide Squad, uh, David Ayer cut. They want Suicide Squad. <laughs> they want Joel Schumacher's original uh, cut of Batman Forever, yeah. which is apparently 270 minutes long. Can you imagine having to watch Val Kilmer for that much time? Is that because Tommy of that Lee scene? Jones, that scene with the bat that that uh, everyone was so excited about a couple of months ago of just Batman seeing a giant bat in his cave and everyone's like, "Not." Nah. They have that scene. It's 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 on the DVD. <laughs> you can watch that scene in its entirety right now. You don't need an extended cut of Batman Forever to see that. So so I think I think what you should do is just. <laughs> Oh wow! Yeah, uh, I don't know if this hashtag is going to be as popular because the director of the remake of the thing is called—I don't even know how to pronounce his name. Ma- Ma- so you got some long Norwegian. Yeah, name? it's Matiz. So it's like Mathis with a J before the S. <laughs> Van Hejningen Jr. So I don't know if that will work in a hashtag, especially because that Hejningen word could be pronounced. Not like that, uh, but yeah, that yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I would be interested in that. Honestly, uh, the effects would be yeah, just to see to see what they do with practical effects uh, thirty years after because that came out in twenty eleven. Uh, so yeah, thirty years mm-hmm. after the first one. But I just, I just don't think that there was. I don't. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that shout factory or somebody like that puts out a cut of the movie i mean they they had done that with exorcist Mm. 3 where they lost the the footage right but they had video dailies so you you can watch a version of exorcist 3 that was the original cut that didn't even have um jason miller as damian caris it was just uh brad dorif as, as him and the gemini killer you can watch that cut and it'll jump in and out between like VHS footage okay. was... from the film to uh, the 35 millimeter print. So I, I mean, if Universal were to pass that on to Shout Factory, I think that would, I would, I would probably buy that. I would, I would watch that. I'd be willing to investigate it. Uh, do I think it could really offer much of an improvement? Maybe, but I, I think the the story and yeah. the characters and the performances are flawed enough where it's not going to make too big of a difference you know will it make for a better film sure but what does that really mean when the film is yeah. garbage at its foundation now uh anything else to to add on the thing no i was just gonna say moving on to christine because that's one of oh. the that's one of the uh stephen king uh what what we call it uh ba- based on a stephen Properties. king yeah property that i enjoy like I feel like most of the movies that are based on his properties are kind of trash, and this one, even though it's not a great movie, it's enjoyable throughout. It is never boring, and I think it plays with eighty stereotypes really well, uh, where you get the you know typical nerdy guy that becomes cool somehow, and then he turns into a dick, but also adding this uh, element of this machine that he can't control that at the beginning is really nice and can't control it's which is a very 
I don't know if it's an original story, but at least I did. I had never seen anything like that before when I saw it, unless you're talking about a robot or something like that. But uh, it's it's campy and it's silly. But when it comes to Stephen King properties, it's uh, at least to me one of the most enjoyable ones to watch and easiest to watch. Also, yeah, there there's definitely a heightened air of campiness to it that. I, I think makes it an enjoyable watch, but I would also consider it probably one of the more forgettable films in his filmography. Uh, and maybe even one of the more forgettable Stephen King properties to have been released during the 80s, which is not even to say that it's a bad movie or that it's a bad horror movie, because I don't think that's the case at all. Uh, but there's just something about it that doesn't stand out, I think, mm. within the the collections of these two men who are like horror icons, you know? Right. So I, I will say I just, that that lead actor in the film who can be found in other 80s films. Uh-oh. Seems like we are having a connection problem with Hans here. Welcome back, Hans. Yeah, we had a bit of a problem there. I was just talking about how Christine had a reputation, I guess, back in the 90s and whatnot as like a movie you would have to check out, even though it's not particularly, uh, you know, massive or big in its own right kind of like leprechaun like oh you ever see leprechaun like people are talking you ever see a leprechaun leprechaun yeah i don't know is that what were you gonna say about mm. christine wait so you think it's in the same level as, as something like leprechaun i i don't think i don't think christine is a is a movie that's remembered by many people or i don't think anyone would add it to the list of their favorite movies but if you look at the filmography, i guess my context of the movie or the way that I watched it is just I just watched them back to back. So I didn't even think of, you know, where this would fall in his entire filmography. I agree with the things that you're saying about how it's kind of forgettable and ha- kind of uh, missing a little bit of edge or a little of a hook, I guess. But I, I guess the the nostalgia of it, the look of it, uh, I think he he played really well with that aesthetic of the time where it kind of felt like a like an edgier version of uh um fuck what's this gay movie with travolta <laughs> greece you know at times greece. it felt like an edgier greece so i enjoy that but I, I i i don't disagree with the fact that it's not you know it's not a great movie and it's not a movie that you will remember or that you could even uh think about john carpenter would you hear that name like something like the thing or halloween or you know big trouble in little china uh, I do think it's brandished more as a Stephen King hmm. film than as a John Carpenter yeah. film. And it might be specifically because of that greaser 1950s element that you're getting to, because that does overlap into things like Sometimes They Come Back or It or, I mean, any of those films. He's big on like 1950s Americana from when he was a kid and putting that into properties. So maybe that has more to do with it. And for the record, no, I was not speaking to the quality of Christine by comparing it to Leprechaun. I was just saying back in... <laughs> The 90s, you know, when you would talk to people who weren't horror aficionados, and I was getting to this when you, when you had uh, dumped out of the call here, uh, you know, that would be one of the movies where it's like, oh, you ever see Freddy? You ever see uh, Jason, Leprechaun? Christine would eventually be on that list as one to check out. Oh, okay. oh the killer call. All right, yeah. Yeah, because it's, a, it's an original story that, what would be the closest? Hitcher? <laughs> Maximum Overdrive. Oh, right. Okay. It's it's a it's a subject he revisits a few times. Like there's a couple of different Stephen King movies based on killer cars, but this is the most well done. You have Maximum Overdrive, and then you have Trucks, which is a, a, essentially a remake of that. 
that comes out in the 90s. I think it might be based on the same property, or he rewrote the story. I, I, I don't know. Just milking? Very, uh, milking the trucks? Very Stephen King, yes. The best thing about Maximum Overdrive to me is the Green Goblin yeah. being the bad guy, essentially. Green Goblin insignia. <laughs> Before anybody was like, in on Marvel comics or could recognize. Yeah, that. how the fuck would that even? That, I mean, they could never do that now with the internet and the access to information. But is that is that good? I've never seen Maximum Overdrive. Right. No, I mean that for the longest time was considered one of the worst films ever made. Stephen King directed it himself. Oh, okay. And uh, it's a lot of fun, though. It's a fun movie. It's it's is it's as good as a movie about cars coming to life needs to be. It's it's I mean it's not like Christine. Christine is also just a quality yeah. film in general. But for that type of movie where it's like ah we're stuck at a truck stop, Emilio Estevez is a star, and we have the you know giant like freighter trucks running people over. Okay, and they're alien controlled. Oh oh okay. So they have consciousness because of a meteor, a meteor that comes to Earth. This is druggy Stephen King. Okay. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is Stephen King during his coke okay. phase. Makes sense. Yeah. What's next up in John Carpenter's film? Uh, we had either Starman, which we didn't see, or Big Trouble in Little China, came in '86. Well, what what can we say? What can we say definitively about Starman that we? I mean, because I I know almost nothing about the movie. I think I remember seeing like an advertisement for it in an old magazine uh, from before my time. Jeff Bridges is the star of that movie, correct? Oh, wait, hold on. Yes, I was confusing Starman with Dark Star. Starman is the one that's E.T. What the fuck is Dark Star there? Oh, okay. So, no, Kurt Russell is not in that movie. That is Jeff Bridges, who, you know, they're frequently confused. Dark Star is a... I I can't really speak to that. I remember there are some, like, H.R. Geiger elements to dark star like where it feels like an alien knockoff yeah. at some point it says it's i might be confusing that with a toby hooper film i don't is that is a space movie it says a small crew 20 years into their solitary mission find things beginning to go hilariously wrong i've never seen this one either mm. huh all right well the movie that i was mentioning earlier is starman not dark star then star- <laughs> okay so you have seen starman no all right well I then saw, we already I, covered I, yeah, that, yeah, right? yeah we don't we don't really need to yeah, that's whatever it's, it, we don't need to continue with that. So what? Human ET. It's ET with Jeff Bridges, not Kurt Russell. Yeah, 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 exactly. What follows Starman? Big Trouble in Little China. Big Trouble in Little China. That is a. I mean, how were they expecting to do that movie today? With The Rock, right? With I mean, with The Rock and who was going to direct it? Robert Rodriguez. But how can you how can you really do that movie and have it like have the essence capture? Well, you- Without the studio pulling the plug on that midway through, I mean that wouldn't even get to it. Would it wouldn't work? You, it, it wouldn't you, work. It's a good thing that it probably hasn't happened. You mean what would they use instead of the rice hats and the Asian yes. powers and the Asian mysticism and magic? Yeah, correct. Why don't you talk about this film a little bit? Well, it's uh. It's uh, Kurt Russell at his best, again, back to to being that 80s catchphrase action star that's kind of in shape, but not really, uh, with his big hair. And uh, there's a mystery in this, uh, in Little China. Is it Little China, is that in, hmm, is that also in New York or is it LA? Or I don't remember that part. 
the little Chinatown is in. I mean, I I think this is in. I think this takes place in California, but there's a Chinatown in, it, yeah, yeah. in every major metropolitan area. But in this, well, in this movie in particular, I don't remember exactly what it is, but it has a lot of Asian mysticism and a lot of Asian people with superpowers. Uh, and uh, what's the 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 main villain's name? Uh, who's amazing, by the way? That looks like Chan Song. Fuck, what's his name? Lo Mei or something uh, like that? What is, is his name James Wong? No. Are you talking about the, the actor? No, 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 I'm talking about the character. That's that, It's definitely Lo, Lo Mei because uh, that's food. Uh, I just <laughs> just Google yeah. that. But um, uh, big... Lo Pen. That character... Lo Pen. It's awesome. Uh, especially going against the Kurt Russell character because it's it's like a complete opposite of this braggadocious American and this other character is just this ancient Asian spirit. Uh, but yeah. it's, it's a, it's a fun rump <laughs> with a lot of, uh, <laughs> with a lot. Well, then a fun, a fun, a, a fun. What? A, a, a fun is that what? even an expression? I don't even know if that's even an expression. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I think, I think what you meant to say was a fun romp, a fun rump. A rump is a, would Booty, be uh, right? somebody's backside. Yeah, well, yes, that's correct. Close to that. You know what I meant. Um, uh, <laughs> it has. It, it's very eighties. Also, it's another great capsule of like what those type of movies were at the time. The special effects are uh, great for the time. Uh, it depends a lot on. Yeah, they definitely are a lot on that too. One thing that I don't like though, uh, who's a, an actor that George Car Carpenter continues to use. I think he used in. Uh, uh, Prince of Darkness is the, this Asian actor that's really bad who's like his sidekick I forgot what his name is but every time he's on screen he takes me out of the movie completely because he's such a terrible actor I had his name hold on yeah. you know who I'm talking about right the little skinny see I, I can't I, say I, the little, little skinny mind, Asian actor um, Jay no I don't know anyway it's great it's one uh it's all right. It's irrelevant. Yeah, but to me, to me, the movie it's definitely top five when it comes to his movies. Uh, it's one of my favorites from his uh, filmography, just because it's not serious at all, and it's such a just fun. Just you know, you just entertain from beginning to end, and and uh, yeah, there's no there's no boring moments in it. the The main character is great, and it drives the movie forward, and then. The villains are very cartoony. It's very comic booky before comic book movies, you know. Definitely, I, I think he's I, John Carpenter in general, uh, especially during this time period in his career, is somebody who I think really defined that kind of feeling long before anyone else with his own original characters and stories. And he, he's kind of a pioneer, especially in that regard. Um. Is there anything else to really add about Big Trouble in Little China? I mean, it's a fun movie. Yeah. I don't know how deep it really goes. The, the The effects are so stylized, though, that, you know, it, I don't even think you could fathom those kinds of wacky, cartoonish, just crazy uh, special effects being employed today. Because you're opting for surrealism and uh, a complete disregard to reality in favor of uh you know that kind of style over 
something that's going to be realistic or believable. At Especially all. for a movie that's not aimed at children. Like you can you can picture something like yes, like Spy Kids or like Shark Girl and Lava Girl or something like that. No, what is it? Shark Boy and Lava Girl, mm-hmm. uh, something like Shark Boy, Lava Girl. There was also a spinoff or whatever. I don't know something like that where it, where they use special effects that maybe not similar, but it's very fantastical. Is that even a word? I don't know, but it's very like fantasy like. Uh, and uh, for a movie for adults, it's really you know, difficult to find, especially mm-hmm. nowadays where movies like that, I don't know. What's the, what's the last action movie that had elements of fantasy like that, that didn't really take itself seriously to come out? Probably something like journey to the center of the earth. Something bad like that. Is, Brendan Fraser movies, the mummy. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So, if you haven't seen it, this is definitely one of the uh, John Carpenter movies that you should check out. Just because it's, it's also very different to all of them, all of the other ones. It's, it's probably his goofier movie uh, compared to the tone of. No, I, I don't. I don't think he gets more over the top than he does here. Right? I think that can definitively be said. This feels like a cartoon yeah. at points, but in a good way. Um. <clears throat> Yes, yeah, that, that's not a criticism of it. It's not like, not like Suicide Squad or Batman Forever, as we were talking about before, where that gets cartoony in a very bad way. In a very, very bad way. Um, Prince of Darkness comes out in 1987. That stars uh, Sam Neill, who I think was fresh off of Omen Part 3 during that time. He, he's such a... Sam Neill's got an interesting career because he seems like a quality... Uh-huh theater actor you're wrong. or or one of those types you're, like a thespian kind of guy you're thinking of you're thinking of in the mouth of madness the oh ex- yeah the, sorry prince of darkness is what what is prince, prince of darkness of, i haven't seen prince of this darkness this one's more of like a culty movie that deals with different dimensions and uh it deals with uh wait a minute with yes. the priest and like the gr- donald yes. presence is in this movie the right? green goo and like okay and uh you know the the lady has no skin it's very supernatural, yes, very yes. Yeah, culty. Uh, the Sam Neill one is the, yeah, Mouth okay. of Madness. Is, is Mouth yeah. of Madness, right. All right. So I was jumping ahead a little bit there. Uh, Prince of Darkness, I have seen. I just have, I, I don't think I, it really held my attention. It's weirdly, weirdly serious. Uh, but then you look at the performances and the setting and it's very silly. So totally... Same with with the movie that we're going to talk about uh, after they live, which is a memoirs of an invisible man. Where you watch that movie, you don't really know which. Chevy yeah, Chase. you don't really know the tone of the movie. Uh, in this one, it tries to take itself very seriously, but it's very goofy just because of the nature of it. Not not on purpose, but because of the way that things are done in the movie and the performances, it ends up. Difficult to take it serious, especially when it's dealing with something like, you know, different dimensions and you have like these monsters and these things. Uh, not very memorable either. I'm not a huge fan of Donald Pleasance. Uh, I don't think uh, he's... What's your problem with Donald Pleasance? I, he's just never grabbed me or my attention. Same with the Halloween movies. Like for for me, the Halloween movies, I think he's like the... Maybe the the uh weakest link 
Are you about to say the weakest? Oh my yeah. god! I'm yeah, I've n- I, I I find him to be the strongest element of any Halloween. I mean, not really the like four through six. I think he's those those films are irredeemable. He's too. I think he would that character would fit perfectly in something that's more over the top. I don't really see Halloween as that. I mean, I guess when you start moving on to the little girl being the killer, that's when you get silly. But I, I, I he just never grabbed me. Yeah. So for this, having him lead the movie and also being something that. It's supposed to be taken seriously, but delivered in a kind of cheesy 80s way. Uh, it's, it's even difficult for me to even remember exactly everything that happens in it. So I, 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 it wouldn't be one that I recommend for people to watch. This is probably, this, I think this probably is the most forgettable film of that era of his filmmaking. Because I, I'm right there with you where I've seen it and it didn't entertain yeah. me. Uh, it didn't. It didn't uh, uh, command my attention for much of it, and it. I don't know. It felt totally inconsistent. Yes. So why don't we hop into a much better film, as far as I'm concerned? They Live, which swaps out uh, what could have very easily been, in my opinion, Kurt Russell for then WWF wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper, and pairs him with Keith David. Yep who's great in everything. Uh, this movie takes place in Los Angeles. And uh, according to Jerry, this film uh, had been mistaken for the longest time as anti-Semitic propaganda. Did you get that vibe from they No, Live? not at all. Wait, so what were they saying? That they was... Well, the, apparently the, that was the The thing. aliens were Jewish? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's that's what was uh, discussed on message boards during the early aughts. Is ooh, I mean Carpenter. You know he's he's like David. Carpenter Ike. did say that he, the audience needs to find whatever meaning they want in his movies. Like he's always said that that he just puts the movie out and whatever you get from it is what you get from it. But I don't know if he would agree with that. <laughs> I don't know if he would agree with the fact that aliens are just Jewish people. <laughs> but it's weirdly it's yeah. weirdly. Uh, current too you know that that the, the oh, yeah. theme it's very uh it fits again it suffers from the same thing that 80s movies suffer which is you know cheesy acting at times and cheesy action but the plot i can i can see that plot being reused in the modern movie and uh and pulling it off I, I mean i guess something like well, no, Mars attacks is too obvious but, but something like signs i guess can borrow some elements from this but I don't, I don't know about the jewish thing. I don't know. signs signs i'm just thinking aliens. hold on, no, 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 no. Hold, on. hold on a second <laughs> S- signs and they live are two completely different i mean even look mars attacks i was willing to go there um i guess that, just... that's still like that operates at a level 10 they live is much more stripped down even though it is wacky at points um, I guess I just connected Mel Gibson I, I, I and Jewish know. people, and I just went signs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think I think so. Um, yeah, they, they live does feel as, as relevant today as something like Escape from New York, um, I, and it, it dates fairly well. It is, I, I think, I think it's so over the top in certain aspects, just because of the casting of Rowdy Roddy Piper delivering some unused trademark lines that could have been, you know, 
applied for WWF matches <laughs> at the right. time. I'm pretty sure he improvised a good portion of that. And everything that is specifically memorable about the film ties back, I think, as a product of like his career. So the whole fight sequence with Keith David, which has been spoofed on South Park, yeah. and uh, you know, it, it's it's the real defining moment of the film is their fight, and it still holds up well. It looks good, and that's entirely something that he brought to the table. Like he had to teach Keith David how to uh, pretend make a fight look right. legitimate. Yeah. So you know, but the problem with They Live that I have is that it kind of it trails off into something else mm. in like the last 25, 30 minutes of the, of the movie for it, it. Like it's conclusion feels half baked. Like they didn't know where to go with the story and apparently shooting a gun at a satellite is the one thing that's going to potentially open civilization up to the truth. It's like they had a couple, a couple um, of days to shoot feels- the ending and what's the, what's the easiest resolution that we can give to these aliens Right. It it felt like they maybe had some kind of other ending in mind. They didn't have the budget for that, and they just cobbled something together at the last minute. Like, uh, I don't know, maybe he goes to the roof and he shoots the satellite, and that that's what does the trick. And uh, it does have a very memorable, like, pin at the end of it. Little montage of, you know, all the, all the facades dropping right. from the aliens and people being woken up to the truth. That's, that's extremely memorable. And fun. And uh, uh, is this based on a previous existing property? Was there a comic book or or some or like a novel, short story, or something that this was based off of? I, I know that Carpenter had written the script yeah. under a pseudonym it, for whatever reason. It's um, it says that it's uh, based on a short story from 1963 called Eight O'clock in the Morning" by Ray Nelson. Okay, all right. I thought so. Because I, I know that there were certain illustrations or, or uh, you know, graphic novel adaptation of it that either coincided with the release of this movie or were released a little bit before that were based on that short story. So th- this is a property that has been, uh, you know, around, even though it hasn't been publicized, it hasn't been popular by any means until this film mm. came about. Um, do you have... Any any problems with this film? Aside from its anti-Semitism. <laughs> no, that's the best part. Uh, mm. I mean, besides the, the fact that the ending feels rushed and uh, like they couldn't come up with anything more creative than that, not really. I think it's very enjoyable. Uh, it's very iconic now, too, because of the, the look of the monsters and the, the sunglasses thing and also the bubblegum line yeah. the, that is you know, iconic for that movie. Or I think if you, if you mention they live, most people might not know what it is. But if you mention the, you know, the bubblegum line that he says, a lot of people are aware of that line more than maybe where it comes from. Uh, but I think people would, would recognize the, the look of the aliens from memes and whatnot. How many times have you seen like a meme of of like an illustration of Donald Trump, but he's one of those yeah. aliens, or Hillary Clinton, or Obama, or or anybody that's wealthy and powerful? Like that that's commonplace on the internet. And it's like boomer tier, yeah. you know. Um, 
And a lot of people who are familiar with that probably don't even know where it came from. That's the thing. I think it's the um, iconography of it is more uh, recognizable than anyone thinking. Well, same with same with uh, Jason. You know, the mask is more recognizable than Friday the 13th, Mm. the movie series, you know. Do you think that's something that movies today lack that maybe was a component that was focused on uh, earlier like earlier in the culture is trying to include things that are specifically built for iconography. I think so because we don't really have those heroes anymore. You have heroes that have been pre-established decades before this ones were original heroes, original villains that they came up with and they had to build their own story for the character and build who the character is out of, Usually the second movie, because on the first one, they wouldn't even know if it was going to be a hit or not. Uh, Now, since most of the movies that are kind of similar in in genre to this ones, uh, most of them are either a random, if you're talking about horror, most of them are a random ghost or a random demon or someone that doesn't really have that much of a mythology to it. Or if they do, it's like, okay, after the movie, you have to go research it. Uh, and the the heroes that we have are either superheroes from comics from a long time ago or something like what uh, Fast and the Furious or something like that, where it's, where it's just regular human beings that race really fast. So there's nothing that uh, you can you can say, yeah, this is an iconic character from the 2000s from a movie, especially because you don't really have series with eight sequels anymore unless you talk about Saw. I guess Saw will be the one character the little tricycle creep but is that really yeah i mean that that's it i think it's kind of so following they live that is kind of the end of john carpenter's quality right i maybe i mean you you watched memoirs of an invisible man i have not watched that yeah that was another one of his that i missed uh, I am curious about it because I do enjoy, like, vintage era. I mean, it wasn't really vintage era Chevy Chase. That would be 1970s to even mm. 80s. Uh, this was early 90s, I believe. 90, no, yeah, 1992 is Memoirs of an Invisible Man. So um, what what is just, like, the general vibe of this movie? Is it a comedy? Is it a drama? What, what's the deal with Memoirs of an Invisible That's Man? That's the thing. I, I don't know if there's a, a director's cut or any different... Kind of cut that now that that I was about to say that what this movie is, uh, I don't know if this was intended because the tone of the movie it's very confusing because you have charismatic Chevy Chase who's a dick, but no one can see him, and at times you know he he uh, he gets to hear what other people say about him, but he's still the same dickish character that you expect him to play, but at the same time the movie kind of expects you to take it seriously. So you have this dick in this world where this uh, female character who's supposed to be his love interest, but every interaction that they have, you can tell that she's very uncomfortable with him. Like, there's no chemistry at all. But it's trying to be sold Mm -hmm. as kind of a romantic comedy at the same time. So it's just a, a lot of, like, tonal issues throughout where you don't really know what you were supposed or how you're supposed to react to things is not scary and and the suspense is very like milquetoast and bland and i i I, the movie's the movie's pretty much just driven by 
Chevy Chase's charisma, but like you said, it's 92, so this is not peak Chevy Chase, which is, I guess, why this movie didn't really do that well. And Daryl Hannah yeah. is at least visually uncomfortable throughout the movie. I don't know if she was, but every time they interact, like when they kiss or when they embrace or whatever, you can tell that just kind of like, ugh. And, and it, it probably because Chevy Chase is a dick behind the scenes, but it, it, it really comes to screen. Like you can really see that she's just not up for it. So that adds a layer, an, yeah. an extra layer of like, what the fuck am I watching at the end of it? Yeah. On paper, on paper, this movie should have done well. I mean, it has a good cast to it. Sam Neill is in this movie. He, there's Michael McKeon. Yeah. Like you have good comedic talent. It's a Warner Brothers film, so it's a big studio film. The budget was, I mean, relatively sizable for the time. It was thirty to forty million dollars. Um, and I think where things went wrong was that they had John Carpenter direct it. Uh, th- this would be a good movie for. Uh, who it was originally established for, Ivan Reitman, who did Ghostbusters, yeah. somebody who uh, has the comedic sensibilities to work with somebody like Chevy Chase, who was a big star in the 80s and falls into that late 70s SNL tier, people like Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd. That specifically specific style of comedy would have suited Ivan Reitman perfectly, yeah. uh, not quite John Carpenter. With John Carpenter, I think he has other sensibilities that maybe warped the film and created a tonal inconsistency that you're talking about now. So I, I, I feel comfortable in saying that as soon as we get to the 90s, John Carpenter officially hits the wall, essentially. Like, th- th- this is where things come to an end for him as a competent director, which is strange because you have to keep in mind, um, I think, so he was only 40 years old when he made They Live. Like, imagine imagine 40 being considered old today, right? And being like, oh, well, he lost it at 40. Like, most of our great directors right now are in their 50s. Um, So he's only, I think he's 44 at the time of Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Probably started making it when he was younger. And then everything after that is just, he lost it. And it's weird because as you look down at the list, the... um, distributors or the production company gets bigger you have warner bros you got new line universal yeah. paramount sony pictures screen gems put out ghosts of mars oof but yeah somehow or somewhere he lost his touch and then whatever movie comes after this one well in the mouth of madness village of the dam escape from la they're all movies that you can see the attempt you can see how it's trying to be a john carpenter movie but it never gets there. It, it doesn't have all the elements. It doesn't have the the tonal consistency that that his previous movies have. Where if you're gonna throw a goofy character into something that is maybe a little bit serious, it stays consistent throughout the movie. It doesn't it doesn't become right. a comedy in the first ten minutes and then a horror for the rest of it. And then you go to In the Mouth of Madness, which is just Sam Neill being crazy. Village of the Dam, which is just. Um, Christopher Reeve mugging uh, while he could still walk. And then everything else after that is just, you know, the what we've already talked about, which is nothing that you should watch or remember, really. Until we get to the ward. <laughs> oh, the ward. <laughs> Until we... The ward, his big comeback his film. His big comeback, nine, nine years. He comes out of retirement. Yes, yes. 
Um, so, I mean, 